Good morning, Christ City. My name is Heath, and I'm part of the team here. Um, our text for this morning is John's parting words from 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you. We honor you and we worship you. Um, we thank you for this reminder to keep ourselves from idols. Lord, I ask that you would give us understanding to know what this means, uh, understanding to know how we can have life in your name. In this I pray, amen. The year was 2013, and I was home for a few months uh, from Greece. I was a missionary there with my family. My grandmother, who was 93 at the time, as we embraced on the steps of my parents' home, we both knew that this would be the last time we would see each other. We just knew. So she grabs my arm. She's like five foot two. She grabs my arm. She pulls me in close right into her face. And she says to me these words, Heath, I've always known one of my grandkids would be in pastoral ministry, but I never thought that it would be you. In a cheeky way, that was my grandma. It was her way of saying goodbye. It was her way of saying things most important. It was her way to say, Heath, I'm proud of you. You have been changed by the gospel, and I see it, and I'm proud of you. She died six months later. As my story illustrates, parting words are important. They're significant. They carry the weight of last things that need to be said, almost a frenetic desire to say or impart one last thing. Final words occupy the space and time where all the fluff is cut away and you're faced with the glaring raw truth. Given the trajectory of John's message here, his letter in 1 John, we might expect the final message to be one of love, you know, maybe an antichrist reference. No, seemingly out of nowhere we get verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. John's final words are little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, it's easy for us to be confused by this statement. You know, maybe we could write it off as a faux pas, like what does he mean here, irrelevant, or maybe even a clerical error. Maybe, maybe we just kind of want to ignore it and just focus on what the locus of the entire letter says, maybe to love, to believe, and to obey. But no, one must ask the question, what exactly is John referring to here? Nowhere in the 105 verses that occupy 1 John, nowhere does he mention the word idolatry until here. One commentator summarizes John's call, his last words for us like this. It says, reject what is false, embrace what is real. Reject what is false and embrace what is real. Now, this sheds a bit more light, maybe to shed a bit more light rather. In order for us to understand, we must look at three things. We must look at the falseness of idolatry. We must look at our embrace of idolatry. And then we must look at the embrace of what is real. Point one, the falseness of idolatry. Now, when we think of idolatry, what confuses us is, is that we conceive idolatry in you know, antiquated terms. In the West, we think of idolatry as some sort of vice, a, a coping mechanism of ancient civilizations that uh, they would worship a deity, uh, they would have carved statues, they would have things that they would worship, all to appease the gods so that they could have sun for their crops to grow, they would have rain, that would ensure a vibrant crop, that, they would, that their cities would flourish, that their children would have life, and that the enemies would not overthrow them. All of this was through the worship of a deity. It was their way to interact with society and to make sense of what was going on in their world at the time. 
Now, back when we can still travel, if you can remember that far back, if you went to London, the London Museum, you would actually see room after room after room of different ancient cultures and the gods that they would worship. Now, as people living in 2021, we have progress, don't we? We have science, and as a culture and as a society, we have moved beyond the need for such things as idols. We interact with nature empirically, and the flourishing of society is based on our merit and our, our success rather than appeasement of a deity. There is something, uh, this is something rather, idolatry is something to be written off completely. And therefore, so are John's words here for us in 1 John, or so we think. Christ City, our interpretation of idolatry, so our societal interpretation of idolatry, is not the whole picture of what the Bible paints for us. Nor is it an accurate description of the insidious and disastrous effects that it has on our lives. One of the many obvious places that we find idolatry is in this place in Exodus chapter 20 called the Ten Commandments. If you're not familiar with it, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. And if you turn to chapter 20 of that book, verses 1 through 6, we read this. The people are, are just been freed from slavery. They're at the base of a mountain. Moses goes up the mountain and God speaks, giving rules for a new nation. And God spoke all of these things saying in, in verse 1, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on those children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God's desire has always been for his people to worship him, to serve him alone, to trust and rely on him, to love and worship him. Anything rather than things made by human hands. Unfortunately, after this passage in Exodus chapter 32, a few pages later, the people in a moment of weakness, they take all their gold, they melt it down, and they create a statue of an Egyptian god. They were caught in a sense of weakness, and they wanted something comforting from their past life. And they were caught in their idolatry. The Old Testament continues of story after story after story of how humanity has gone off the rails horribly every single time and it also shows how God both loves his people but also how he judges his people for their unfaithfulness to him in these verses here in Exodus we have a concept of idolatry that is physical that's real that's external and that's visible but but there's more to it let me show you turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 14 verses 1 through 6 Ezekiel 14 one through six. Ezekiel is a prophet of the God. This is many years later, and, and this is him speaking. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me 
through their idols. In verse 6, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord, repent and turn from your idols. Turn away from your faces from all your abominations. Here you have the leaders of the community, the religious elite. On the surface, they look just like everyone else. They've got it together. Influential people. Yet when they wanted to approach God, they had doubt in their heart. They wanted to approach God and they hedged their bets. They held their, their face and countenance before God, but hedged their bets and they had idols in their heart. They maintained idolatry internally. They had mixed loyalties. They had mixed loves in their hearts with the source of their desires. God saw this and he challenged them on their infidelity, he gave them an opportunity to what? To repent, to change, to turn away from their unfaithfulness. This text shows us that idolatry expressed externally is sourced from an internal rebellion against God. Unfaithfulness, unfortunately, is located at the very center of who we are, expressed by our desires in our heart. Throughout both the Old and the New Testaments, this tension, this issue is played out over and over and over again, leaving us the unsettled reality, rather, that, that idolatry is linked to our internal desires and it has external consequences. This is the concept of that idolatry that is throughout the entirety of the Bible, not an antiquated one. To quote the late theologian David Paulson, regarding our text specifically here in 1 John, he says this, John's last line properly leaves us with what is his most basic question, which God continually poses to each human heart. Has something, has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken the title to your heart? It's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight. John's last call for us, Christ City, his parting words are therefore a call, a diagnostic to examine the motivation behind our thoughts, our desires, and our behaviors. Author Timothy Keller, discussing sin, defines idolatry this way. He says, sin isn't only doing bad things. It's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing before, then, before rather, more than God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. We falsely, we functionally serve and worship something else other than God. The bad news is, the bad news is that we have become enslaved by that very same thing. In our world of love is love. In our world of love is love. Idolatry is a love for something other than God. And the bad news is, is that love is a harsh reality. And it's one that enslaves Christ City idolatry is the sin beneath the sin. May I remind you of verse 20 from last week. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is true God and eternal life. John's parting words for us, Christ City, are for us, are for a call for us. Uh, for idolatry, for us to reject these, this falseness, for us to embrace the one that is true, Jesus Christ. Reject what is false. Embrace what is real. That brings us to point two, our wholesale embrace of idolatry. 
Now, as you begin to see the narrative idolatry throughout the Bible, you begin to see how delicate and how complex it is and how it becomes, it permeates everything that we see. It's like walking through a cave of cobwebs. And then you begin to wonder just how many spiders are actually down there. The same is when we examine idolatry, particularly within our own hearts. As you look and as you begin to see just how insidious it affects all of our behaviors. Now, if Timothy Keller is right, if sin is building our identity on our self-worth or anything else other than Jesus, if idolatry is the sin that's beneath the sin, if this is true, we need to really look at how fundamentally it grips us so. We need to look at the root. And I think it is, I think it's this. We don't believe, we don't trust, we don't surrender because at some level in our hearts, in our heart of hearts, we functionally don't believe that God actually has the power, has the power to love us, the power to heal us, the power to save certain areas of our lives which are so dark. So we take the reins, we control, we attempt to fix the problem in and of ourselves, and we use things, maybe they're good things, and we use these things, and they become ultimate things in our lives. And as Keller would say, unfortunately, we become slaves to those very same things. Just like the community leaders in Ezekiel's time, we approach God with idols in our own heart. In an ultimate sense, we turn to idolatry because we don't want or cannot surrender our freedom of autonomy. Because idolatry gives us the illusion that we are actually in the driver's seat. Bluntly, to use John's language here from 1 John, we love the world rather than the Father. Let's look back at 1 John and look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. In this text, our autonomy is laid bare. It's expressed as the concept of loving the world. And our specific idolatry, it's expressed in the trifecta of the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And it's all consuming. Christ City, I'm not understating this when I say that left to your own devices, you are stuck. The black hole that is idolatry sucks us in, and we are stuck by the desires of our flesh, the desires of our eyes, and the pride of our life. Our autonomy enslaves us. See, the sad, harsh reality is that we choose what's best for ourselves every single time, and this is not good news. If left here, in and of ourselves, the love of the Father, John says, is not in us, and we will pass away, sucked into the black hole, and we will die with all of our desires. We are enslaved. Our embrace of idolatry is all-consuming, Christ City. So, we can understand that on a theological level. We can, we can maybe picture it as a theoretical construct or even on a conceptual level, but to truly hear what John is saying, we must see how this works on the ground, from the grassroots. We must look at it in real time, so to speak. So the question becomes, how do we know our idols? How do we know what they are? And secondly, from that, how do we know we can be freed from them? Now, I have this kind of diagnostic set of questions, um, a rubric that I've developed in the last 10, 15 years um, through countless conversations of evangelism to, to pastoral discussions. And this is it. 
I think every person throughout the entirety of history, for every culture, everywhere, every time, has had to grapple with four existential questions. Now, whether you answer these for yourself or you just, you just accept culturally the, the answers that culture gives for you, they still must be answered for us to function in life and as a society. These answers form our worldview. Now, whether you're a theoretical physicist or whether you're a, a part of a primitive tribe living on Sentinel Island, you still have to answer these questions. They dictate how you think and what you believe in. The first one is, who am I? Like, really, who am I? And this speaks to our identity. The second question is, why am I here? When you look at the stars and you wonder, wow, why am I here? And that deals with our purpose. The third question belongs on a sociological level is, where do I belong? And the last question is, why is the world broken? Why do, do bad things happen when we've done everything right? Now, from 1 John, forming a Christian worldview, we can answer these questions this way. It says, my identity is in the security of being a child of God, born of the Father. Our purpose then is to worship God in which our joy is complete. We see this in 1 John 1. As a child of God, then I belong to him and I have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And lastly, John articulates that brokenness in this world is caused by sin. So when we have these three answers, then we can, when we can have the first three rather, we can actually then deal with the last question. We can get to the root issues of life and, and our expectations and the place where we put our ultimate hope. As an example, I have a friend. He excels at pretty much everything he does. It's irritating, actually. He has joined his identity and his purpose together, and his ability to navigate the world is, is built on one ethos, and that is success at all costs. His place is at the top of the food chain in pretty much every scenario that he enters into whether it's business, relationships, whatever. Sadly, if he's your friend, probably it's transactional in nature. There comes a time when economic crisis strikes, and he suddenly finds he is no longer at the top of his game. The whole world collapses, and, it, and he becomes a mess, and he begins to self-medicate himself with a revolving door of Tinder dates. Tinder date after Tinder date after Tinder date. Trying, he's trying to balance the lack of control in his external world with internal satisfaction by dominating those people he interacts with. He then ironically finds God. He becomes a Christian. And he throws himself wholeheartedly into the works of service. And he finds himself the elders board, on an elders board of a church. He is what you would call a super Christian. Once again, he's at the top of his game. Things don't go well, though. He's aggressive and he's controlling, and he finds himself ejected from the leadership team. So he comes to me and he asks me this question. Heath, I've done everything right. I have done everything right. I've done what I'm supposed to do. I've worked hard. I've given my time. I've given my money. I've repented of my sexual sins. I've done all the Christian stuff. Why are bad things still happening? Why am I still broken? Do you see it, Christ City? Do you see it? Do you see it? See, my friend was told as a kid, the only thing that mattered in the world was to excel. Unless you finish first, you finish last. In order to excel, you had to control all the variables. And this external formation in his life, combined with his autonomy over time, produced in him a deep idol of power and control. 
Didn't matter the scenario, whether it was a, a relationship, an extramarital affair, a dialogue relating to church governance, this need for power controlled him. It consumed him and it destroyed him. Idolatry, Christ said, he is the sin beneath the sin. Now place yourself in my friend's position this morning and ask, why do bad things happen? Where is brokenness exhibiting itself in my, li- in my life? Now, Christ said, bad things do happen. And at many times, they are outside of our control. They're beyond our fault. But it's in the reaction to those bad things. It's in, it's in our action and reaction to those setbacks. It's in, it's in the hardship of unmet expectations, people that have let you down. It's where the ugly parts of our personality rise to the top. And that is where we see our idolatry most acutely. Do we turn to God or do we self-medicate? Do we turn to God or do we self-medicate? Now, one more example. As a kid, I was born in, into a family of Scottish-Irish ancestry. And, you know, assuming that I got that from the DNA, came the propensity to anger, you know, or so I thought. My friends used to tease me, saying that I was like a stick of dynamite with a short fuse sitting next to an open flame. I probably would have made a really great Viking berserker. Now, you get the idea. That's a different story for a different day. But as a teenager, these episodes of anger really scared me. I thought, what am I going to, if I'm going to hurt someone? I was really convicted. So I really sought to bring this issue in my life under control. And through a regimen of spiritual disciplines, through prayer, through a mentorship relationship, to some degree, I had a measure of success. I controlled my anger through sheer force of will and discipline. Then I become an electrician. I had the reputation of being able to work with anybody. All was good. And over the years, I began to think, oh, yeah, I've got this solved. This moral issue of anger, not an issue anymore. Years later, we as a family, I'm married with kids at this time, we moved to Greece as missionaries, and I found myself in a situation where every layer of self-sufficiency has been stripped away. If you really want to find out who you really are, move to a place, live in a different country, live in a different culture, learn a new language, feel completely inept at everything, and you feel all alone. Consequently, as a side note, Have compassion and mercy on those who are new in our community because this is what they're going through. See, I felt emasculated as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a provider for my family, and even as a Christian. And the anger returned. The anger returned. I felt like the Incredible Hulk living in a state of rage for a whole year. I was completely controlled by it. But it was in this fugue state of anger that I realized that it wasn't anger that actually was my problem, but rather my self-sufficiency. It was my idolatry, and specifically my addiction to control and to wield power, to be in charge. I was just like my friend. I functionally did not believe that God would want me I functionally didn't believe that he wouldn't love me, that he couldn't use me for his purposes. And in my weakness, at my base level, I did not believe that the gospel was applicable to me because why would God want me? I wasn't worthy. So I placed my trust in my own merit, my own self-control, and it enslaved me. It enslaved me. I was like a puppet controlled by bursts of anger. 
I was just like the leaders of Ezekiel's time, serving God with a heart full of idols. Christ City, pause for right now and ask yourself, where do I? Where are my negative emotions? Where do my actions exhibit themselves most often? Often. What are my hot buttons? From there, through prayer, ask God to lovingly show you where you've made good things into ultimate things. Ask God to reveal to you where your idols are. Ask him to show you the sin beneath the sin. And own what you see. Now, once we see the falseness of idolatry, once we recognize the utter embrace of it in our lives, it is then that we can realize that we can embrace the real, the true. It is only then can we embrace Jesus Christ. It's time for some good news now. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. I love this text. Jesus, he's coming back home to Nazareth. He, he has come to earth. He's born of a human. And he, he comes to the synagogue and he reads a text that is, that is announcing the promise of a Messiah, a savior of the world, one who would liberate and, and, and help free people from enslavement. And this is the text. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up and read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Christ City, the bad news of our autonomy and idolatry is that we are left poor and we are left destitute, even if we even drive a Tesla. We are captives to our own sin. We are blind to the effects of our idolatry and we are oppressed by our selfishness and our desires. We need something outside of ourselves to save us and that's something Jesus says in this text is himself. The one promise, the Messiah who would proclaim good news to the poor, to free the enslaved, to give sight to the blind, to free people from oppression. The sin beneath the sin, Christ City, is idolatry, and God has sent his son into the world to liberate us from the sin beneath the sin. Turn back with me to 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ said he reject what is false, embrace what is true. In the hundreds of conversations I've had in the past decade, in dealing with the muck and the mire and the brokenness and our complex idols, the answer is always the same. Jesus Christ Son of God, this Jesus dies the death that our idolatry, that our infidelity deserves. He frees us from slavery through himself. He liberates us from death. He gives us the life that we don't deserve, and he places us on a path of healing. He loves us, and his love is not harsh. Our identity, our purpose, our belonging are in him. 
In dealing with idolatry, the sin beneath the sin, we need to surrender our autonomy and we need to do what? Repent. Now, I know every single one of us here this morning is walking around with open wounds, trying, with, trying to fill the holes with idolatry to stop the bleeding. We are oozing and we are festering Christ City. We need freedom and the healing that only Jesus can provide this morning. Here with me, again, the words of Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 6. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ City, our path to healing is through surrender in confession of our sin and of our idolatry to God. Through Jesus, we can know that we can be healed. We know we can have a shirt of life, and we know we can live free. Now, I realize that this is a quick introduction to a very complex and difficult path, one that is filled with the landmines of unmet expectations and trauma. If you need help, reach out to me. Reach out to Brandt. Reach out to your elders, Jonathan and Doug. We would love to walk with you, to talk with you about these issues. So as we close Christ City, heed John's final words to us this morning. Verse 20 of our text. And we know that, John, that, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Christ said he reject what is false, embrace what is real. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we confess and we bring before you the, the idols that are in front of our face, as Ezekiel says. We confess these to you. We put aside all of these things so that we can worship you. Not because we can be healed, but because you are worthy. Not because we receive life, but because you are holy. So Lord, give us the strength to reject what is false. Embrace what is true. In your name I pray. Amen.